Hi, this is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, where our mission is to bring Christ's hope, healing, and wholeness to our community and to our world. Our service times are 9 and 11 each Sunday morning. Find out more at www.communitycovenant.net. Hey, good morning, everyone. I just want to uh, let you know that tonight uh, at 7 o'clock in the library, we are having our after-the-shock post-earthquake talking circle. Uh, I know many of you expressed to me that every time there is an aftershock, right? Kacha, I was looking up. Remember that Sunday when that happened in this service? Yeah. Every time there's an aftershock, you kind of relive... Um, the moment of November 30th all over again. And it has a lot of us on edge. And so uh, what we're doing is we're going to meet and we uh, have a trauma recovery specialist that's going to be there along with myself and Pastor Ed. And we're just going to have the opportunity to talk about it, maybe learn some skills of how to deal with what we're feeling uh, and how to get through uh, the days and weeks and months ahead as we continue to have aftershocks and reminders of what happened uh, on the 30th of November. Also, I was back uh, at the Covenant Midwinter. It's a gathering of Covenant pastors and leaders. Happens every January. And I was able to sit down with Cecilia Williams. She's the executive minister of one of our Covenant executive offices, uh, Love, Mercy, Do Justice. And they are responsible for domestic disaster relief. And we began to talk about the possibility of uh, a fundraising campaign uh, that will be done nationally uh, to try to raise funds for materials uh, for those of us who have been hardest hit uh, by uh, the earthquake. And not only that, partnering with another ministry who brings up qualified labor uh, to help do repairs. Uh, And so those of you that... Uh, have that gap between your deductible, right, uh, and what you have to pay out of pocket and your earthquake insurance. For those of you that don't have earthquake insurance uh, and are struggling with what to do, uh, we're trying to work out some uh, earthquake recovery relief uh, for our church and for others that have been impacted. Um, so this is what we're going to be doing. The next couple of weeks, you'll be seeing Marcy Bistadu, our Director of Mission and Mobilization, and she'll be in the lobby, and she'll have a form uh, that you can fill out. It just gives us a, a, just an overview of your situation, gives us really valuable information, because what we're going to do is we're going to assemble that over the next several weeks, then we're going to get back uh, to the executive office there, and they're going to assess exactly what our needs are and how they can help us specifically, or what kind of materials are needed, uh, how much volunteer help, uh, is necessary uh, to help us rebuild, okay? So there's help on the way. And I just want to give you that good news. Uh, don't be proud, shy, or bashful, okay? Go back when you see Marcy there. Uh, fill out the form. Let us know what's happening. And as we begin to put this plan together, I'll give you more and more details, okay? So this is a first step towards getting some relief as our, as our covenant denomination mobilizes um, to help us, okay? So I just want to give you that bit of good news. We're working on that. Uh, but now it's time to transition to Dana. All right. It is so good to have you here this morning, kids. I want to see where you're at. Give me a big wave. I need a big good morning wave. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. And as you all know, the mystery box is back. And this morning we have none other than Chase. Come on down, Chase. We've got Chase in the mystery box, and I'm super excited because, um, Chase, I know he put some thought into this one. Uh-huh, uh-huh, I know. Oh, my goodness. He's been smiling since last week. Oh, wow. (laughs) Hey, Chase, I love those red shoes. You know that? That is cool. When I was a young man, there was a, a, a singer named Sammy Hagar, and uh, don't you listen to him now. He's, you wouldn't. But anyway, uh, he used to wear red shoes, okay? I love red shoes. That is so cool, Chase. So, this is Chase, and he has the mystery box. And the mystery box goes home with one, two, three, sometimes more of our children 
on Sunday morning. Their job is to bring it back with an object inside. And then, Dana, you and I have to take that object and attempt to make a biblical object lesson that we can apply to our daily lives. All right? So, Chase, let me get down here with you. I want to get. Is it alive, Chase? Is is it living, breathing? No. All right. That's good. Remember we got the hedgehog one Sunday morning? Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, after the fact, I just read an article online yesterday about you're not supposed to pet hedgehogs because you get salmonella. (laughs) That's why my stomach got... No, no. All right, Chase. All right, Chase. Let's open this box up, see what's in here. That's my drum roll. Ah, Ah, now you're going to have to tell us what this is. Yeah, Chase, this this is pretty cool. Beyblades. It's what? Beyblades. And what does it do? Yeah, what's it do? Okay. Want to demonstrate for us? Yeah, we need a demo on this one. So I'm out of the loop a little click bit. Click it in. Click it in. And then you pull it and it spins. And it spins. All right, I'll show us. Oh, all right. Even the stairs. Wow. All right. Okay. So let me tell you where I'm going with this, Chase. Oh, good. <laughs> all right. Oh, good, Dana. I know you're so glad. Can I, may I have that? Yeah. Okay. All right. This clicks out of here. Show me how that clicks in and out again, Chase. Let me see that one more time. You twist it this way. Ah, and then you pull it. All right. Okay. So, Chase, when I was looking at that just now, and I was looking about, oop, I didn't break it, did I? No. No. Okay. Uh, man, I just had real simple toys when I was a kid. Uh, you remember? Yeah. So, Chase, when I was looking at this right now, I was thinking how this plugs in, then you pull this, and there's like instant energy, and it propels it, right? So it's able to move on its own. And let me tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about how when we come to faith in Jesus Christ... We are connected to Jesus, who is the true vine. And it's that connection with Jesus who becomes our source of life. And not only that, the Bible says that all those who come to faith in Christ are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is like a, uh, is like a nuclear power plant in our heart and our life. I mean, it just fuels us and gives us energy and strength and power to live in the world for Jesus, to have a great impact for him. It's like the Holy Spirit's our energy source, and uh, that's part of God's plan for us. So I want you to demonstrate this one more time. Everybody watch what Chase is doing. All right. right. We're to plug in and get wound up in the right way, everyone. All right. And then... There you go. All right. Look at that. All right? How cool that is. It's still spinning. It's still spinning. <laughs> and you know what? Um, our lives should be empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's like the blazing center of our heart and life in Jesus Christ. And he empowers us to live for Christ in the world. Chase, that's a wonderful yeah. example. We need to plug in and let loose, okay? Right. Can I pray with you? All right. Father, we thank you for Chase. We thank you for his example and his reminder today of how Jesus Christ uh, is our source of life. And uh, we are grateful for the gift of the Holy Spirit, that when we come to faith in Christ, we are filled with your spirit and empowered to live for you in the world. But Lord, we need to plug in and we need to submit and uh, surrender to your spirit within our lives. And as we do that, we discover new life, new power, strength, energy, creativity, all the things, Lord, that you desire for us to help us live effectively in the world to witness for you. Father, as we think about that, as we think about Chase's example, I pray for Chase. Father, I pray that he would grow to be a man of God, that he'd be a man of influence He would be a man who, under the power of the Holy Spirit within him, would make a difference in the world for the sake of the gospel. And Father, as we pray for Chase, we pray for all the children of our church. And Lord, we ask that they would all come to faith in Christ. And Lord, they would grow up to be men and women who make a difference in the world for you. Father, thank you for this mystery box this morning. Thank you for Chase. Thank you for our kids and their families. We commit them all to you now in the name of the Father and of the Son 
and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Thank Chase. You, Chase. Good job, Very buddy. Very nice job. All right. If you have never had the mystery box ever, 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 or not in a very long time, and and you think you'll be here next week, kind of double check with your parents, or raise your hand, and um, I would love to hand you the mystery. Oh, I see Cole. Cole, come on down. And I know for sure Cole's n- never had the mystery box, so come on down, Cole. Yeah, you can. Yeah, just just weave your way through. That's okay. All right, it's kind of a little bit of a maze sometimes on Sunday mornings. This is Cole, and she's in our three- and four-year-old class. And so, Cole, will you bring this back next week with something really good in it? Oh, thank you. All right, thank you, Cole. Let's give her a round of applause. That's pretty brave to come up here. And you can stand up here for a second with me if you want to. Hey, if you are new around here, we have classes for our three- and four-year-olds and five- and six-year-olds. If you head down the hallway, those will be on your left. Kids on the Rock. We're ages 7 through 11, and we are upstairs in the youth room. So if you would, the rest of us stand up, say hi to somebody, and kids, you are dismissed. Bible close by, you can turn to Haggai, the book of Haggai, Old Testament, in chapter 1. Again, the scripture reading is from Haggai, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Blessed is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Bruce. Hey, I am excited to start a new sermon series this morning in the book of Haggai. Um, I had someone during the, the moment of friendship and greeting say, hey, I'm really excited about this. I don't know much about Haggai. And, and you know, that's not uncommon. Uh, he's a minor prophet. They call him a minor prophet just because of the length of the book, not the importance of the prophecy. Uh, but he's in the Old Testament, and of all the Old Testament books, Haggai is the, the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's second only to Obadiah. Uh, not only that, it's only quoted once in the entire New Testament. That's in Hebrews chapter 12. That's important, though. We'll get to that uh, in the weeks that follow. Um, though it be a very small book, uh, the message for us today uh, is as relevant as it was uh, to the Jews who received the message from him in regards to rebuilding the temple. As we, um, Christ followers, are about his work of kingdom and, and, and the building of his kingdom in the world. And so there's great application that I hope to draw out that we can see uh, over these next several weeks as we look at this uh, verse by verse and go through it. Hopefully, we're going to be encouraged. Um, I don't know about you, uh, but when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, it was electrifying. I mean, I, uh, the thought that I would have my sins forgiven, that I would have a new life, um, there seemed to be a, a passion in my life that hadn't been there previously. Uh, with that passion was a set of priorities that were driven with that passion. Uh, and uh, with those priorities... Uh, there was a purpose, recognizing that I was created by God with great intentionality, uh, that he prepared good works beforehand, uh, that I might walk in them, uh, and that I could have a part, I could be a part of his work in the world. I mean, what greater reason to, to get up in the morning and put your two feet on the floor uh, than when you recognize that the sovereign God of all creation created you for himself. He loves you. Uh, he has given you new life in his son. Uh, old sins are, for, are forgiven. Uh, and that you have the promise of forgiveness of all your sin and new life and eternal life with him. A life with new passion. A life uh, with God sized priorities, and a life uh, that is driven with a purpose, an eternal purpose in what you do every day of your life 
makes a difference for all eternity. Now, I don't want to oversell something. I'm just telling you what the Word of God says about what He has done for us. And so that's a reason to get up. That's a reason to to be excited. It's a reason to engage the world, the culture, the places where God has sent you and directed you um, to make a difference, uh, to be his ambassadors, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, right? That we are uh, ambassadors of, of, of his messengers, of his reconciliation. That's all great stuff. But then... As we live our lives, there are distractions that come along. And it seems like those distractions can draw us farther and farther and farther away from uh, God's design for our lives, his purpose. Uh, our, our passions can become askew, right? And with that, then our, our priorities aren't in alignment with God's priorities for us. Uh, and for the world. And then that affects our sense of purpose, uh, what we're about, what we're here on earth for, right? Um, Rick Warren, the author of The Purpose Driven Life, says that we were created by God and for God. And he goes on to say that until we understand that, nothing else in life makes sense, okay? And that's really what we're talking about here. But again, the farther and farther we get away, sometimes we forget. Sometimes we get distracted. You know, the same was true in the Old Testament um, with the Jewish people. Uh, God made a covenant with their father Abraham. Uh, he said uh, to Abraham, through your descendants, I am, going to I am going to bless the nations, all the inhabitants of the earth. And of course, it was through his descendants that Christ would come. And, and Christ would be the Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited anointed one of God, the promised one of God. But he would be our Savior. And he would die on the cross for us. And we have that beautiful picture in Revelation 7, 9 of, of, of people from all tribes, tongue, and nations gathered at the throne, worshiping the Lord. And that's a beautiful fulfillment of what God had promised Abraham long, long, long ago. Uh, but in between that time, uh, we're a part of that narrative now. And uh, it's so easy to go astray. It's so easy uh, to forget the important things. Um, several years ago, in 1987, a theologian and author, a J.I. Packard, wrote a book called Hot Tub Religion. All right? Hot Tub Religion. And uh, I've entitled this message Hot Tub Religion because what, what Packard was saying was that in the Christian church in particular, in suburban evangelical Christianity, um, people were assigning priorities to God rather than allowing God to set the priorities for their life. They were appropriating God and saying, God, now you, your job is to bless me, to fill my life with good things that I can consume. Uh, and in that consumption, Christians drifting farther and farther and farther and farther away uh, from God's design and purpose for their life. Make sense? So we call that, kind of in a suburban spin, uh, hot tub religion. Uh, Chuck Colson, the founder and president of Prison Fellowship, back in 1992, just five years after Packard wrote his book, um, gave a commentary on what he saw dealing with uh, hot tub religion. In fact, he just wrote uh, just a just a little article called, Give Me That Old Hot Tub Religion. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. Now, this was written in 1992. I want you to tell me how relevant this is for us today. He said, there's nothing like visiting another culture to get a new perspective on your own. That's what Patty and I discovered a few years ago in Japan when we visited Perfect Liberty Church, a Buddhist sect that was at the time the fastest growing church in the world. And no wonder. 
the church taught that peace and joy are found merely by exercising our individuality. Golf, sex, or bird watching. Anything was okay as long as you were expressing your inner self. In the parlances of today's language, it would be, just be true to yourself. Right? As I read through the church's literature, I found myself nudging my wife, Patty, and saying, what nonsense, imagine... They're saying you can do whatever you want as long as it makes you happy. And they call that a church. Right? Later, back in the States, Patty and I were flipping through the TV channels one night when a Christian program caught our eye. The set was gaudy. The furniture overstuffed. And the hosts were offering a saccharine version of the abundant life. You can have perfect joy, they crooned. God doesn't want anyone to suffer or be deprived. God just wants you to be happy. Hmm. Soon, Patty and I were nudging each other and saying, What nonsense! Imagine saying, God will give you anything you want as long as it makes you happy. Soon, Patty and I were nudging each other and saying, What nonsense! Imagine! Imagine! It can't be! And then suddenly it struck us. The message of this Christian TV program was no different from what we had witnessed in Japan. It was Christianized Buddhism. It seems that everywhere from Tennessee to Tokyo, religion is permeated by a consumist or consumeristic mentality. Newsweek magazine recently heralded, now this is back in 1992, the resurgence of religion among baby booners. But it sure wasn't the old-time religion. The goal in this revival, Newsweek said, is not salvation, but support. Not holiness, but self-help. People don't convert They pick and choose as if religion were just another commodity on the market. They flit from church to church in search of whatever makes them feel good. In this consumerist environment, pastors feel pressure to act like businessmen, out to attract more customers. In the process, they often unconsciously repackage the church's message. A little rationalizing here, a little rounding off there, and soon the church is transformed into a worshiping community, into a comforting haven from life's pressures. It's what J.I. Packer calls hot tub religion. Well, Colson continues, the church has got to pull the plug on the hot tub. When Jesus talked about the church, he wasn't talking about buildings or programs. He was talking about a new community called out to give the world a foretaste of the coming kingdom. The church's task is not to make people happy, but to make them holy. Its gift to the world is not therapy, but truth. The biblical view of the church Otherwise, we'll be lost if we surrender to a distinctive calling us to feel good consumerism. And we will have nothing better to offer the world than just another Christianized form of Buddhism. Now, we're talking about the prophet Haggai. Well, this is the prophet Chuck Colson speaking back in 1992. And how much more serious the situation has become. In our consumerism that has infiltrated the practice of our Christian faith, we have become a people aligned with our culture, a culture that celebrates the life of the better offer. We are constantly looking for the better offer. In fact, some of us, not even knowing it, live that way. We make our appointments accordingly. For example, we wait as long as we can to make a commitment. 
for fear that once we make a commitment, a better offer will come along. Or we make a commitment, and then the day before we're to fulfill that commitment, a better offer comes, and we pick up the phone and we make the phone call. Oh, um, the children are sick, or um, we've had a busy week, or whatever the excuse might be to then engage in whatever that better offer is. You know, Christians have become very adept at becoming consumers of religious practices, of goods and services that churches offer. And often these churches that are attractional, they pander to the Christian consumer. Whatever it takes to get them in and to keep them in place. Uh, the bucks in the offering plate, the butts in the seat, right? I know that hurts. I know that makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. But what is this, the life of the better offer here in the year 2019, have to do with Haggai? Well, it has everything to do. Because the Jews who had returned from the Babylonian uh, and then Persian exile, okay, those 50,000 or so who came in the first wave back to Jerusalem from the exile found themselves challenged. Uh, Were they going to align themselves with God's priority for the return from the exile? Uh, Were they going to have passions stirred that reflected the heart of God, priorities that were aligned with his? And did they understand their purpose in in the grand narrative of the story of the, the people of Israel that God intended to reach the world through them? And that God had called them to be a people unto himself. And that he desperately wanted them to grasp that and to understand that. And, and that was reflected in the priority that, that was given. That they, as they come back, should rebuild the temple. So were they going to align themselves with that? Or were they going to practice the life of the better offer? Uh, were they going to take the resources, the materials that they brought back from the exile? And, and as they got back to, to Jerusalem, rather than rebuilding the temple, were they going to rebuild their lives in, in accordance to their own passion, to their own priorities? Would they lose the, the purpose and sense of purpose of the grand story of God and where they fit in? Or were they going to adhere to what God had asked them to do and and fulfill the purpose to which he had called them to be a people unto his own? See, that's that's what's going on here. Uh, That's some historical background uh, in in the book of Haggai. So if you have your Bibles, open that up. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. At least we'll start doing that today. Again, um, this first group of Jews returning Uh, From exile after 70 years, you might recall that under King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, the Babylonians uh, sacked uh, Jerusalem, uh, took uh, the the, the smartest and the brightest of the Jewish people and brought them back uh, into exile and into the Babylonian kingdom. And, And many of them served in very influential places. And as they served there, uh, they influenced the kingdom because uh, the stories of uh, the God of the Jews got out and scriptures were told. And, and so even in the exile, God's purposes um, were served as the, the Jewish people revealed their God uh, in the Babylonian Empire. But then, as empires do, they rise and they fall. And then the Persian Empire, they defeat the Babylonian Empire. And so the Jews who were brought into exile in the Babylonian, by the Babylonian uh, people, now find themselves captive of the Persian people. And it was during this time, at, at the end of about 70 years, that uh, King Cyrus, the Persian king, uh, issued an edict that the Jewish people could return uh, to their homeland. And there was a wave of about the first 50,000 that went, and and they returned. Uh, When they returned, of course, 
uh, they found that Jerusalem had been destroyed. Uh, it was just a shell of its former beauty and, and glory. Okay? Now, you can, you can read about this because as we read this, there are other books in the Bible that correspond. For example, if you read the book of Ezra, the things we're talking about today are recorded in the book of Ezra. Uh, a contemporary of Haggai was the prophet Zechariah. And so Haggai and Zechariah were prophets that were called uh, to speak to the people at the same time, this period of time that we're, we're talking about as they've returned uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, and their leadership uh, was a man named Zerubbabel. He was the political leader or the civil authority, okay, that was sanctioned by the Persian government. Uh, he was to reestablish as the temple is rebuilt under his direction as the civil authority, he is going to reestablish the direct line of David, right? The throne of David to the temple. And that throne would not be filled again until Christ comes, right? And he's the rightful heir of the throne of David. And he will sit on David's throne forever, okay? So there's the connection there. Uh, and then you have uh, Joshua, uh, who is the religious and spiritual leader. And along with Zerubbabel, helps establish the people or reestablish them. But his focus is in the spiritual practices of the Jewish faith. And he is a direct descendant of Aaron, Levi, Eleazar, Phineas. Uh, and he is reestablishing the priesthood or the high priesthood. And so you see in these two leaders, the civic leader, Zerubbabel, and you see in the spiritual leader, Joshua, you see the reestablishment, right, of David's throne and of the priesthood. That's really important for the people moving forward. That's going to anchor them in their faith and reestablish them as they come back from exile. And so, as they come back, uh, you can read in the book of Ezra, in particular chapter 3, they begin to rebuild the foundation for the altar and they get started on it. And as they move forward and they're going to start rebuilding the whole temple, uh, what happens is there's political pressure, pressure from outsiders, from other governing or groups of people surrounding Jerusalem. And they're saying, wow, what if the Jews reestablish themselves? What if they rebuild this temple? What if, what if they, they become a strong people and nation again? What does that mean for all of us? And, and King Darius, okay, who is now the king, uh, as we're reading this, um, has once again given them permission to, to rebuild. You see, they started and then they stopped for about 16 years because of the pressure they were feeling from other foreign people around them. Uh, then there was the, the thought that we can't rebuild this temple because according to Ezekiel, as you get into Ezekiel 40, 41, 42, 43, it, it talks about the reestablishment of the temple at the time of the Messiah. And so there were some that said, we can't do this yet. It's not time yet. It's premature. This isn't supposed to happen until the Messiah comes. And then we'll do this. So those are two reasons why they, 16 years, they tarried, right? From when they started, they stopped. 16 years goes by. But then the third reason and the reason that God addresses has to do with the condition of their hearts. The, the people aren't wanting to rebuild uh, the temple because they're saying, well, it's not time yet. But, but during the time when they started, they stopped, and now the time that, that Haggai has come and, and uh, Zechariah comes, and God is calling out the people, and in that time, what are they doing? They have fallen back into the life of the better offer. Rather than being obedient to God and, and fulfilling the 
the, the purpose that, that God had, had, had called them back through the Persian authorities to Jerusalem to reestablish the city, okay, to rebuild the temple, um, they get distracted. And they start focusing on their own passions, their own priorities, and their purposes go askew. And they start doing things that would be very consistent with what we do as consumers today. They started consuming things to make themselves comfortable, to make their lives comfortable, rather than focus on the priorities of the Lord. And the prophet Haggai comes to them in the first of four prophecies found in this very short book. And in verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say that time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. The time has not yet come. Well, why? Because they were busy rebuilding their own lives. Making themselves comfortable. Taking care of their own priorities. Verse 3. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, speaking of the temple, God's house, right, remains in ruin? Now, what, what did the temple represent? It represented the dwelling place of God going all the way back into the wilderness wanderings of Israel where God dwelt in the tabernacle, right? It represented the manifest presence of God with his chosen people. And it invited a return of God's presence. You might recall shortly before the destruction of the temple, the glory of the Lord had left that place because the sin of Israel or of, of Judah, okay, had, had, had been such an offense to God. And so the priority is to reestablish the temple, the dwelling place of God among the people, to reconnect them with their God. Right? That he might once again dwell among them. So that they could have his passions be theirs, his priority be theirs, and they could rediscover and live into the purpose that which he called them to be their people. Right? So that's what's going on. And the Lord says, You're building your own houses and you're paneling them. Well, what does that mean? They were actually going up into the hills and they were getting cedar. And they were, they were rebuilding their houses and, 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 uh, doing an add-ons and different things and putting cedar roofs in. And I mean, it was like lavish stuff that some of these people were doing rather than rebuilding the temple. In 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 2, when David takes the throne and, and, and he establishes the throne, he says, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of the Lord remains in a tent. And David's concern was, we've got to have a better dwelling place for God. And he wanted to build a temple. The Lord said, no, no. No, you're not going to do that. But it was through his son Solomon that the temple would eventually be built. Now, Solomon builds the temple. 1 Kings 6, 1 and 9. So if we go to that. 1 Kings. 1 Kings 6. It's not on there. It's not in there. Okay, so let me tell you what it says. Okay? Solomon, he builds the temple before he builds his own palace. Right? He puts the priority on the temple, on God first. I want to build a house for God before I build a house for myself and redo, my, remodel my own house. And so he goes and he does that. Then after that, he rebuilds his own house. And what does he rebuild his own house with? Paneling of cedar. Right? Expensive stuff. That's what's going on here. The Lord is saying, look at you. 
You're paneling your houses and my house lays in ruins. What's going on here? Verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you are not warm. You earn wages only to have them in a purse with holes in it. That's where the expression, a hole in your pocket, comes from. Okay? What is the Lord saying? The Lord is saying, listen... You do all these things, you have all these things, and you're never satisfied. You always want more, and no matter how much you fill your pockets with, it's always like they're empty. Does that sound familiar? Is there any connection to us today? I think so. I think so. And it's, it's ironic because it's really what Solomon, the wisest and richest man that had ever lived, said in Ecclesiastes. Where Solomon basically is saying, hey, you know what? I've had this, I've had that, I've built this, I've built that. I have all the wisdom that anyone could ever want. But in the end, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's like chasing after the wind. All right? And this is what the Lord is saying to the people. The life of the better offer isn't a better offer at all. I want to introduce to you not the life of the better offer, but a, but a life of a better offer. And that's a life which you're connected to me. Your priority is in line with mine and your purpose fulfills what I called you to be my people for. Now that's the life of a better offer, not the life of the better offer. Because the life of the better offer never satisfies. It leaves them still wanting and disconnected from God. Now listen to what the Lord says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down lumber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. Okay? This is what I want you to do. Now, in, in, in one of the great confessions, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, right? The Westminster Confession, we learn that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to joy, enjoy him forever. And, and what the Lord is telling his people here is you need to align yourselves with my priorities so that I will be glorified. Because it's through you that all the nations of the earth will come to know me. Right? And your job is to put a priority on glorifying me. Glorifying me, not following your own passions first. Because when you glorify me, you bring me pleasure. And when I am pleased and you're glorifying me, then you can truly enjoy me because my pleasures become your pleasure. Right? And so he's reminding them of this. And then he says this. Verse 9, you expected much, but you see it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty. And this goes right, if you read Deuteronomy 28, verses 38 through 40. Basically it says, you know what? If you're obedient, if you do what I tell you to do, if you follow the directions and the priorities I have for you, if I'm first in your life, uh, you're going to have... Lots of food. You're going to have lots of grapes and wine. Uh, your needs are going to be met. But if you don't, then I will deny you those things. And it's a form of discipline. The harvest will be great if the harvest in your heart reflects that you're my priority. But if it isn't, if you're drawn away through the life of the better not offer, not the life of a better offer, then you'll find yourselves wanting. And this is what he says. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, 
While you, while each of you is busy in his own house, therefore because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I have called a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the olive, and everything else that the ground produces, on people, on livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. The people are just back from exile. Why did they go into exile to begin with? Because they had fallen away from God. And exile was a form of discipline. Now they're returning, and after a very short time, what are they doing? They're starting to fall into the very same things. Okay? What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6.33? Seek ye first, what? The kingdom of God and everything else will be added unto you. And that is exactly what the Lord is saying here through the prophet to the people. If you seek me first, if you let me fill your hearts with my passion and passion for me, if your priorities are aligned with my priorities and you begin to fulfill the purpose for which I called you to myself, You do that. You seek me first. Don't worry. I'll take care of you. And that's the message here to the people through the prophet Haggai. So the question is, how are they going to respond to that message? Right? Well, we're going to find that out next week. But we need to ask ourselves the same question. In light of what we're hearing, in light of what the Word of God says, in light of the questions that he asks the people through the prophet, how are we going to respond to God? Are we going to keep looking for the life of the better offer? Or are we going to find ourselves living into the life, right, of a better offer a life with God.